I think we can dismiss our younger children to Children's Church at this time. The rest of you want to get out your sermon outline, says the harvest of Christ on it. We are in John chapter 4, the middle of the chapter, starting at verse 27. So you'll want to get out your Bibles and turn to John 4. Let's read John 4, verses 27 through 42. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes, see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, They asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, and it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would... Open our hearts and our minds to hear from you this morning, that your word would speak to us, that you would draw us to yourself, that we would know when we leave this morning that we've heard from you. Do this for us in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever stood by the side of a pond and skipped rocks? For some reason, that was one of my favorite things to do as a kid in the summer. Just stand there on a lazy summer day and throw flat rocks out over the pond, over the water. See how many times you could get them to skip before they went underneath the surface. And of course, you'd have contests, you know. I could get mine to skip five times and somebody else would get it and you try to look for the elusive, perfect flat stone that you could get to skip across the water. And when you do that, you notice 
that with each time the stone skips, the water sends out ripples so that everyone knows just where the stone hit. And here in John chapter 4, we're continuing the story of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman. And we see that Jesus' words about living water have skipped through this woman's heart. And now those words are rippling out through the Samaritan village. And so it is we come to the rest of the story, so to speak. And we see that the disciples were surprised by Jesus and that woman. Verse 27, surprised by Jesus and that woman. Our passage starts in verse 27, and it says that the disciples were surprised, astonished. They marveled to find Jesus talking with this Samaritan woman. And no one asked Jesus, hey, are you sure you want to be seen talking with her? But I think that's probably what's going through their mind. I mean, they didn't ask it, but they were thinking it. And that's to be expected. After all, the Samaritan woman herself had basically said the same thing all the way back in verse 9 of of John 4, where it says, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And I always find it interesting that Jesus' actions regularly surprise the disciples. Seems like every time they turn their back, he's off doing the unexpected. First it was that incident with the water and the wine at the wedding in Cana. And then he wrecked the market in the temple courts. And after that he had that mysterious midnight meeting with Nicodemus the Pharisee. And now here he is talking with that woman. And they had to be thinking, what is he doing? And what's he going to do next? And sometimes in our own lives, we get overwhelmed by the unexpected. And we're reacting to events and situations, and we're thinking, come on, Lord, what could possibly happen next? Of course, something else always happens next. And I think Jesus must smile at our reaction, probably uh, just as he did at the disciples' reaction. He knew the disciples were struggling with their faith, just as the Samaritan woman was struggling with her faith, just as we sometimes struggle with our faith. And while Jesus is busy meeting this woman's spiritual needs, the disciples are hanging around trying to figure out what's going on. They're probably very much relieved when she got up to leave. Though, you know, I wonder if they noticed that she left her water jar behind. See, filling the water jar was why she came there, but it's no longer a priority with this woman because her heart had been filled to overflowing with the living water of Christ. And you have to ask the question, what is the instrument that God uses in this story? And the answer is a single woman, a solitary woman whose life has been dramatically turned around. She's abandoned her water jar. I think that note is fascinating. This woman left her water jar. Now you can imagine if this were a Steven Spielberg movie. Imagine what they would do with just a little comment like that. 
You know, the empty water jar had been a symbol of her life. And now that she's found Jesus, she no longer needs that broken, empty water jar that could never satisfy. And I think if this were a Spielberg movie, the last few scenes would be of this water jar lying on its side and the camera, you know, coming out of the wide angle shot of the water jar, the symbol of all that she's left behind. She's found Jesus. She's found the living water of a living Savior. And what does she do? She does what she can't stop herself from doing. She tells others of what Jesus has done for her. And the people of the Samaritan village must have been surprised as well. I mean, she left Jesus to go tell all the people whom she'd previously been avoiding. Remember, she went at noon in the heat of the day. Everybody goes in the morning or at night. But she went to the well at noon so she wouldn't have to talk to all those people who gossip about her and all of her husbands and all the men in her life and the coming and going. And I mean, she's the bad woman of town. And so she goes to tell the people who've been gossiping about her immoral lifestyle. And when she finds them, she tells them, hey, I've been changed. Come and see this man who never met me, but who knew all about my past. This guy is so remarkable. Do you think he might be the Messiah, the Christ? If you don't believe me, come and check him out for yourselves. And the people of Samaritan Village did. They respond to her honesty and her excitement, and they headed out to see Jesus. In a similar way, the response of all Christians to the love and grace that Christ shows us should be to tell others, hey, I've been changed. Come and see. Come and learn about Jesus for yourself. And meanwhile, the disciples are there, and they're urging Jesus to eat something. They're completely oblivious to what's going on here. And so Jesus takes the opportunity to tell them about his priorities. And he teaches them that they need to feed people like that woman. Verse 31, feed people like that woman. He tells in verse 32, he has food they know nothing about. And they are lost, they're clueless, they're bewildered, they're concentrating on the physical food, uh, on meeting their immediate needs. They're thinking about literal food just as quickly as the Samaritan woman had thought about literal water in the first part of the chapter. I mean, the disciples are preoccupied with passing the salt, and Jesus is trying to teach them about being the salt. And it should all sound familiar. Apostle John is giving us another contrast between the physical and the spiritual. Nicodemus was thinking about physical birth when Jesus was teaching him about spiritual rebirth. The Samaritan woman was thinking about well water when Jesus was teaching her about living water. And now the disciples are thinking about the food of men, and Jesus is trying to teach them about the food of God. Jesus is usually concerned first with the spiritual and only secondarily with the material. And truth be told, we're like the disciples. You know, we get caught up in the material, especially at this time of year. 
We got to have this. We got to see that. We got to go there. And we miss the opportunities that God gives us for spiritual growth, opportunities to draw closer to him. And Jesus is sharing with them that he's been dining at the table of God's blessing and that he's been given those same blessings to that woman. In verse 34, he says, My food is to do the will of whom, him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Remember, Jesus was sent by God the Father on a mission to be the Savior of the world. He's teaching his disciples that his food, in a spiritual sense, is to do God's will. It's by being faithful and obedient that we're spiritually satisfied. Following God's will is what satisfies you. Satisfaction for the Christian comes from doing God's will and helping those around us learn about the new life that's available through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We're nourished not only by what we take in, but also by what we give out as we try to uh, follow Christ on a daily basis. And then Jesus tells them to open their eyes and look. Verse 35, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. See that the fields are white for harvest. And I think he's teaching the disciples and us that spiritual nourishment comes from following God's will, and God's will is to harvest his field, which is people. Just like he was just doing with that woman. He's saying, I've already started the harvest. Jump on the wagon, come harvest with me. And it says the fields are white for harvest. And I think, and I can't absolutely be sure, but I think as Jesus looked down the road at the Samaritan people walking towards him, the Samaritans wore long, flowing, white robes. They still do today. And he saw all those Samaritans coming up the road in those white robes. And as he looked down the hill toward the approaching people, it resembles a white field, like a ripe cotton field made out of Samaritans. And he's teaching the disciples, you were just in these people's village and you didn't harvest. And now they're coming to you. You have a second chance. They'll be ready to be harvested for eternal life. Are you ready, disciples of mine, to do the harvesting? They're coming here because unlike you, They were able to listen to people like that woman. Verse 39, listen to people like that woman. She's very prominent in this story is that woman. And remember, her life has dramatically changed, so much so she couldn't help telling people about Jesus. She's overflowing with joy. Because of her new life. It says, verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. In contrast to the Pharisees, who should have known better but didn't want Jesus around, the Samaritans knew a good thing when they saw it. And they urged Jesus to come and stay with them, and he did. And because of his words, more people became believers. In the same way, if we bring people to Jesus and if we give them God's word, then because of his word, people will become believers. See, most people are a lot like the Samaritans. It's not that they do bad stuff. They do, but those are just symptoms. But rather that they're separated from God. 
They have no knowledge of God, no relationship with God, no belief in God. And that's the root cause of their problems. And the Samaritans, despite knowing this woman and knowing her past, they come to see Christ because of her words. And then they hear Jesus for themselves, and they believe because of his words. And they exclaim at the end of the passage, verse 42, they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The truth, this truth, it's not said by the Pharisees who opposed Jesus, and this truth is not said by the disciples who are preoccupied with food. This truth is said by the hated Samaritans whose hearts and minds were open to the words of Jesus. Jesus told the Samaritan woman if she knew who he was, then she would ask him for living water. And now she knows. And the water jar she comes to fill is empty on the ground. But the heart she hadn't come to fill is overflowing with living water. She came for water. But instead, she met Jesus. And then she went to tell the people. This woman who nobody trusted, this woman who everyone gossiped about, this woman who everyone referred to as that woman and everyone knew exactly who they were talking about. But in the surprising providence of God, that woman was the one he chose to use in giving the gospel to the Samaritans. And that is so like God to do the unexpected, to bring about surprising providences in our lives, to call the least, the lowest, and the look down upon to bring God's good news to these people. People who had thought bad stuff about her, people who had said bad stuff about her, and people who had probably done bad stuff to her. And yet it is that woman who is one of the very first evangelists in the gospel. I mean, we'd expect God to send one of the disciples. We'd expect God to send one of the theologians, the scholars, the Reverend Dr. Pharisees. You know, true believers. But no, when God wants to teach us about worship, as he did in the first part of the chapter, and when God wants to teach us about missions and evangelism, as he's doing here, when God wants to make sure we get the message of the gospel of God's grace right, he sends a first century whore so we would listen. And once again, this is not a call to some vague, uncertain belief, but an active and specific trust and unwavering commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And again, the alternatives are clear and simple. Believe in the Son, have living water, eternal life. Reject the Son, remain under God's wrath. Trying to live as a broken water jar that doesn't hold water. It's belief versus unbelief. And over and over again, the Apostle John is showing us the Lord Jesus Christ is really and truly the Son of God and that he's bringing dramatic change to our lives and if we believe in him, we'll receive eternal life. But if you want living water, then you have to be thirsty. I've been reading about a, a, an old book 
actually not that old, but it's an old story about a man named Ernest Shackleton. And he was an adventurer and an explorer. And uh, there's a book about him. The name of the book is simply South. And uh, it's a riveting account of his heroic but doomed expedition to Antarctica from 1914 to 1916. So you think of that time frame, what kind of ships they had, all that stuff, 1914, 1916. And they had planned to cross the continent of Antarctica, but their ship was caught in the ice and it was eventually crushed. And they had to take to the water in open boats, in those big wooden lifeboats. And after having made it safely to Elephant Island, which is an uninhabited island in the South Atlantic, Ernest Shackleton and five others set out to sail 800 miles in an open wooden lifeboat through seas that are considered the most savage on earth to get help on the island of South Georgia. And they made the crossing successfully. And Shackleton was uh, eventually able to get help and to rescue all of his men. And the book is one of the greatest accounts of perseverance against all odds that I think has been written. But what caught my attention was the terrible struggle with thirst that Shackleton and these five men endured in those last days of the crossing to get to the South Georgia Island. They were cold and wet. They're struggling against mountainous seas. But he writes in the book, Shackleton does, it was thirst that took possession of us. Lack of water is almost uh, always the most severe privation that men can be condemned to endure. And we found, as during our earlier voyage, that the salt water in our clothing and the salt spray that lashed our faces made our thirst grow to a burning pain. And his men, they had a small amount of water, and they would beg to be given the next day's allowance of water, and he had to refuse them. And it says they, the last few days were a long nightmare. Their mouths were dry, their tongues swollen. And he writes, the wind was still strong, and the heavy sea forced us to navigate carefully. But any thought of our peril from the waves was buried beneath the consciousness of our raging thirst. A day later, they saw land, but they were unable to find a place to come ashore. It was a coast of sheer cliffs and dangerous reefs. And he said, our thirst was a torment. And they spent a desperate night and another day looking for a place to land. They made it to the island, and they couldn't find a place to land. And he said, finally, they came ashore, And they stopped, and we heard a gurgling sound that was sweet music to our ears. And peering around, we found a stream of fresh water almost at our feet. A moment later, we were down on our knees, drinking the pure ice-cold water in long drafts that put new life into us. It was a splendid moment. You remember one of the terrible sufferings of those who were crucified was a raging thirst. And that was our Lord's fate. He who so perfectly controlled himself during that torment and kept his terrible miseries to himself could not keep himself from saying at one point, I 
thirst. And thirst of that kind is a perfect metaphor of the human condition. Just as living water is a perfect metaphor for salvation. Man suffers from a raging thirst that he cannot think of anything else. He's thirsty for love, for happiness, for security, for goodness, for fulfillment, for purpose. She is thirsty for acceptance. He is thirsty for forgiveness of his sins that weigh on his mind even when he won't admit it. She is thirsty above all for eternity, for a life that doesn't end in either blackness or judgment. He is thirsty for all that he was made for, made as he was in the image of God. Thirsty for God and for the knowledge of God and for communion with God. And he doesn't know it. And rarely thinks in those terms, but that is what he and she is thirsty for. And men and women are always trying to slake that thirst. And they draw from all the wrong wells. And the salt water they bring up cannot slake their thirst, but they keep drawing up the bucket. Look at human life. Observe it closely. Even those people who seem to be making a success of it, And it's still true, as the Bible says it's true, that men are held in bondage all their lives by the fear of death. Men are greedy for what they know they do not have and they can't escape the desire for. They're thirsty and they live thirsty and they die thirsty. And that's why people take drugs in the such immense quantities that they do in the United States, why they drink to excess, why they devote themselves religiously to their careers or to entertainment or sports or music. And it's why, like the woman of Samaria, they hold at bay, sometimes angrily, even ferociously hold at bay, the dark thoughts about themselves, the voice of their conscience, the fear of death. They're thirsty for life. For life as they instinctively know life ought to be. Life that is worthy to be called life. But John tells us, as Jesus told the woman, nothing can slake that thirst but living water. Nothing can fill that void in our lives except the gift of life from the Prince of Life who made us for himself, who planted eternity in our hearts and then came into the world to give us this life back when we've thrown it away. But we don't stoop down. No one will stoop down. Because that's what it is. That's what it takes. A bending down, a bowing down, a humbling of ourselves, a needy sinner before a holy God. To drink this living water until he or she is made to admit how thirsty they really are. We won't bow down. We won't get our knees into the water and drink until we're forced to admit how thirsty we really are. We saw last week that was the Samaritan woman's problem. She continued to dodge to try to evade the Lord's offer of living water out of fear of having to admit how thirsty she was for fear of exposing that yawning emptiness in the middle of her life. But in Jesus, she'd met her match, and all of her evasions and misunderstandings were nothing to him. And he bored in on the pain and the guilt in the middle of her life and forced her to admit her thirst for living water. And once she admitted it, she was free to drink her fill, and she's still drinking it today in heaven. What, my friends, would Jesus 
ask you. He asked her to go get her husband. She said, I have no husband. He said, you're right, for you've had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. What would Jesus ask you? Would he ask about your marriage, as he did with this woman? Would he ask about your addictions or your anger or your pursuit of pleasure? Would he ask about your sins that you can't surmount and can't forget? Would he ask you about your death and your fear of it? How would he discover to you your thirst for living water? And perhaps you know very well what the Prince of Life would ask you if you were to have such a conversation with him as this woman did and as this village did. Well, he speaks now. What is he saying to you by his word and by his spirit? Is he seeking you as he did this woman? Is he hunting you uh, out of all the defenses that you've put up to protect yourself from him for fear of his judgment? I mean, the terrible, tragic paradox of humanity is men and women avoid like the plague the only one who is both willing and able to grant them the desires of their hearts and the fulfillment of their dreams. The Samaritan woman was thirsty, and she knew it, and she came to Christ, and he quenched her thirst with living water. How much time did she have with Christ? It doesn't exactly say. One, maybe two hours? Did she take an evangelism course? Did she go to seminary? She run out and buy some nifty t-shirts and bumper stickers. She spoke to Jesus and she simply drops her water jar and takes off for the village about a mile away to tell everyone that she met a man who told her about her sin. Would you do that? Would you go into town knowing that everyone there hates you and they think you're a tramp? to tell them that a man was honest with you about your sin? Hey, I just met a man who told me I was an immoral slut. Isn't that great? But he didn't say it in a mean way, and he wasn't trying to hurt me. I think he was really trying to be kind and caring, and I think it was amazing. And that's the hard work for us as Christians, to be so transparent that we're, not willing, we're, we're willing to not only discuss what God is doing for us, how God is changing us, but the sin that God had to wash away because we were wicked and bent and broken and lost until Christ spoke truth into our life. He didn't dance around the issue of our sin. He stuck his finger in our festering wounds that were filled with the stench of death, and he cleansed us with living water and washed us with his blood so that we're now a new creation in his sight. A lot of people think they have to get life together somehow before they can go out and speak to people about Jesus. Is that the case with this woman? Do we see her to return to town to reconcile with all five of her husbands and any uh, potential kids she may have had? Did she go back to the wives that she had hurt because of her adultery? No. It simply says she went back and said, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. How refreshing it must have been for her to hear the truth from a man. 
a man that genuinely cared about her with no sexual intentions. And not just truth, but truth with hope. That's the heart of our great God and Savior. All she knows is that she's wretched, and Jesus told her that truth. It's absolutely amazing. The Samaritan woman was thirsty, and she knew it. She came to Christ, and he quenched her thirst with living water. And the Samaritan people were thirsty, and they knew it, and they came to Christ, and he quenched their thirst with living water. And you and I are to be thirsty as well. We're just as big sinners as the Samaritan woman and just as big sinners as the people in the village who mistreated the Samaritan woman and just as big sinners as the disciples who looked down on the Samaritan woman. You need to know that we're all sinners. And you need to know that sin makes us thirsty. And to you, Jesus says, John 7, 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And if you're thirsty and you come to Jesus and drink, then you too can say, we found a stream of living water almost at our feet. And a moment later, we were down on our knees drinking living water in long drafts that put new life into us. And it is a splendid moment. We need to pray.